We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, it's Mike. It's always been Mike. It will continue to be Mike. And before we start today's show, a quick favor. If the gist is part of your daily media consumption, thank you. You look great today, by the way. But secondly, do us a favor and follow the show if you don't already. Followers, they used to call it subscriptions in the big podcast apps. No, followers. It's a metric that is helpful to a startup, a plucky startup like Peachfish Productions. And so our likes, we'd appreciate those too. Thank you in advance. Here's the show. Hi, it's Mike. Perhaps you know me from such just shows as Monday through Friday. Well, this is Saturday, the Saturday show, where I bring you one from the vault and one from the week. The one from the week was me not talking about the debt ceiling. So today, I vow to talk about me not talking about the debt ceiling. But seriously, and you can write in to me, mike at mikepesca.com. You could get in touch with the gist. Am I crazy? Isn't this the worst news story? Just boring. And I'm not going to say preordained outcome, but fairly certain that the worst won't happen. But also, we don't care about the updates. The updates are always, they're closer, they're not so close. It's some talks, disappointing. Am I wrong? If you really like the updates, I won't begrudge you that liking, but there are few news items that have been covered in this much depth that I care less about the daily TikTok of. If you differ, do let me know. One of you let me know that you didn't like me making light of Alberta wildfires. I would say that I made as much light of Alberta wildfires as I did water in the West and the debt ceiling. They're all bad. Well, water in the West is good. Lack of water in the West is bad. The debt ceiling, well, that is bad. And the debt ceiling showdown is bad. So they're not good things. But you know, I happen to be the kind of guy who has a, shall we say, a tune that could be interpreted as glib. Anyway, that was a lot of preamble. That was the best of the week and the best from the vaults. Let's cleanse our palate of all of that. Memorial Day, the unofficial start of summer. 1967 was the summer of love. I don't know what this will be. Summer of shove, none of the above. But we had Chris Malamphy in to talk about the greatest hits of 1967, including those summer hits from the Summer of Love. That's one of the greatest episodes, as all the Malamphy episodes are one of the greatest episodes, and that's one from The Vault. I'll see you on the other side. Play it now with Game Pass. 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Today in debt ceiling talks, no nothing. Nothing, not at all, no updates. I'm still honoring the just imposed moratorium. I will cover the debt ceiling talks when they are done and you will thank me. Really lots of good debt ceiling maneuvering, negotiation coverage out there. If you're into that sort of thing, you could read it, you could watch it, you could listen to it, have at it, I say. Maybe if you issue bonds, you need to know about it. Or if you're Senator Bill Cassidy, or if you like gangs or the number eight or the gang of eight, that's a good gang. They could maybe solve this thing. Maybe you're one of the weirdos who feels that whatever is in the news, you got to follow it just because it's in the news. What is wrong with you? Now, I will say, I do follow the story. I keep abreast of it. I read a Politico story today. I read a story by Joe Nacera today. I read the Washington Post, the New York Times. Don't worry. It's not like I don't know about the debt ceiling and everything that's going on or not going on. It's just that I'm dedicated to not boring you with it. I want to do an interesting show, not a debt ceiling show. How exciting can the debt ceiling be? At first glance, debt ceiling, I've already created a deficit of interest. At second listen, debt ceiling, acknowledging there are limits to the conversation. It's so, so boring. I'm not saying it's not important. I am saying it's a own goal, a self-generated quasi-crisis. It's annoying, but it's boring. Almost as boring as the most boring topic in the world, water in the West. Three states out West have reached an historic water agreement to keep the Colorado River from going dry. Well, to keep the river from going dry? That does seem like a, an heroic intervention. You really could have said to stop slurping all the water from the Colorado River. Now, unlike the debt ceiling negotiation, this problem wasn't going to solve itself. And by the way, this plan, the plan that CBS Morning mentioned there today, that doesn't actually solve the problem. 
The problem's simple. People need water. People live out west. There's not enough water in the west. Got to take it from the river. There's not an unlimited amount of water in the river. Got to work it out. There's a tension. Now, I'm not an expert in why they're using so much water in the West. I do go back to the people need water dictum. But if I understand it correctly, with a little more depth, I think, and this is reflecting the latest infographic I saw, a single almond uses 800 billion gallons of water. I think that's right. I may be getting the exact figure wrong. But man, do almonds always get blamed when it comes to water shaming. When really, as people, I think we all need the water and we just like the cashews and almonds. But, you know, if you read all these interactives online, these infographics, it it would strongly suggest that if you eliminated the cultivation of cashews and almonds, we'd all be fine. No need for three states to get together. Just say, screw the cashew guys. Only that won't actually happen. It won't actually be solved. We as a species are kind of hydrocentric and the Colorado has a lot of water. So we, the humans, are going to make sure that it keeps having water because even though we fight about who among us needs it more and who's to blame we don't have more of it, it would be in our collective interests for the water not to run dry. And that is why we're going to solve the debt ceiling. Like Lake Mead, that problem is man-made. And also like Lake Mead, national politics reflects the drying up of the reservoir of resources we could once rely on. But further like Lake Mead, it taint dry yet. So sorry to obliquely reference the debt ceiling, but I did make a triple analogy to Lake Mead, so I'm kind of proud of myself. And also, I say, keep it tuned here, the gist, your source for lack of boring debt ceiling updates and only three second sound bites of coverage of water in the West. In other news, the Canadian prairie province of Alberta is experiencing wildfires, which is sad for the Albertans and I shan't burden you with. I will now leave you to a few more minutes to your own life. You're welcome. The year was 1967 and music was in the air. Well, not just in the air, but on the radio. Your home of the hits. We were playing things like the Monkees and the Buckinghams and Strawberry Alarm Clock and the actual Beatles, who all of these other bands were trying to be, but there was other music in the mix. The Turtles, wait, they're also trying to be the Beatles. They're also named after an animal. All right, Aretha Franklin was there. Bobby Gentry was there. The Box Tops were there. Lulu was there. We're going to go over everyone who is there because here right now is Chris Malamphy. He writes, why is this song number one for Slate? But more importantly to me, because I'm an egotist, he comes on the gist to discuss the number one songs of a given year. This year is 1967, a seminal year in music history. We say that a lot, but it's really true. I mean, this was the summer of love, right, Chris? It absolutely was, Mike. How you doing? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. So, okay. So I did notice you have a couple monkeys tunes up there they're essentially trying to be the Beatles, right? The Monkees were conceived for a television show specifically in the vein of the Beatles, right? So though we think of 1967 as that groovy summer of love, the Monkees were absolutely the biggest act of 1967. The Monkees held down the number one spot on the album chart something like 30 weeks out of the year. It's a little hard to overstate just how popular they were. Oh, 
Well, then in June, Sgt. Pepper comes out, but none of the Beatles' number one songs are on Sgt. Pepper. I don't understand how Beatles' number one songs came about, at least until, I guess, maybe by by uh, Let It Be, those were songs on the album. But in 67, the songs were Penny Lane, Hello, Goodbye, all, All You, you need, need Is, is love. love. Yep. None of these are on Sgt. Pepper. No singles were released from Sgt. Pepper. It was the first Beatles album to have no singles issued from it. So even though there are obviously several songs that we all know very well from it. And it basically dominated the summer of 67. It spent 15 weeks at number one. It was a huge hit. But uh, yeah, to your point, all of the songs that went to number one in 1967 were actually all issued as standalone singles. By 60s standards, the Beatles were taking a little too long to record Sgt. Pepper. EMI was getting antsy and they wanted to put something out in the marketplace. So they took uh, the songs Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever, released them as a double-sided single. And what both songs had in common, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, is that they were both songs about the Beatles' childhood. Penny Lane is a Paul song. It's a song about McCartney's childhood and happy memories of uh, the part of Liverpool where he grew up. And Strawberry Fields Forever is a John song, and it's uh, about, you know, Lennon's memories of a small park near his house where he went to go hide away. And appropriately enough, they were released as a single together. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Probably the most interesting of these three singles in terms of its creation is the song that went to number one in the middle of the summer of 67, which was All You Need Is Love. Uh, That was a song that was all but commissioned by the United Kingdom uh, for a a live broadcast uh, called Our World, a broadcast that was going to bring together literally hundreds of millions of people. You know, the concept of a global live broadcast was still very novel in 1967. And uh, basically there were, you know, musical or theatrical performances from all these countries. And the UK was going to be represented by, no surprise, the Beatles, the Conceit, if you will, was that the Beatles would record a song live in front of you uh, in this global broadcast. In in point of fact, the song was not only written ahead of time, it was also uh, backing tracks for the song were recorded ahead of time. However, the orchestra uh, in the song is playing live. The Beatles uh, are uh, more or less singing live. I think there was a lot of studio sweetening later. It's kind of a raucous record. It begins with the French national anthem. It includes pieces of Glenn Miller's In the Mood. It closes with the Beatles almost psychedelically chanting bits of their old songs like She Loves You and Yesterday.
I want to go to the Rolling Stones because of all the Rolling Stones big hits, I think Ruby Tuesday is the nicest song, right? It's the least, like if the, if the Beatles are pop and the Stones are rock, it's that's very reductive. But if the Stones are scruffy. This is the least scruffy Stones song. And I think it's just because of the Beatles influence. Could, could we even call it perhaps the unbrown sugar? <laughs> yeah. You know, Ruby Tuesday and Penny Lane both go to number one within March of 1967. And you could say that both bands are going through their Baroque period. Mm-hmm. It's very courtly. It's almost uh, medieval. Uh, It's got Brian Jones playing a recorder on it. It's basically a lyric about either one of Keith Richards' old girlfriends or a groupie. That story's been told multiple ways over the years, and it's probably an amalgam of both. Don't question why she needs to be so free. She'll tell you it's the only way to be. She just can't be chained To a life where nothing's gained And nothing's lost Flute-like sounds, by the way, are a big theme of 1967. There are all sorts of records that have, you know, various woodwind instruments, and this is just one of many. The Turtles. The Young Rascals, anything to say about these guys? I like the Turtles. Yeah, I mean... Flo, Eddie. I'd, I'd like Flo and Eddie a little better if they would stop suing people all the time, <laughs> which seems to be the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of their career is, is suing people, sometimes to good ends, sometimes to less good ends. Happy Together, I mean, talk about a song with many lives and a great history. It falls in that same semi-Baroque pocket as uh, Ruby Tuesday and Penny Lane. Uh, It uh, actually knocked Penny Lane out of the number one spot, which tells you how popular uh, Happy Together was in the spring of 67. Well, these days, Flo, Eddie, possibly the Rascals too. They don't get much R-E-S-P-E-C-T, but in 1967, Aretha did. This is the moment for Aretha Franklin. This is the most apocryphal story of all time. It's been repeated by so many people and nobody can seem to get the quote right. But reportedly, Mr. Redding was quoted as saying, that girl stole my song. Uh, He he said it respectfully and admiringly, and he was quite right. She really reinvented it. Uh, She and Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records rethought the entire structure of the song. The original Otis Redding recording doesn't have a bridge or really a chorus. Aretha added the R-E-S-P-E-C-T spelling. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, take out T-C-T. She added the Sakatumi. That Those are her sisters singing the Sakatumi, Sakatumi, Sakatumi part. 
Jerry Wexler had the idea to give it a, a sax bridge, which is basically an interpolation of uh, a Sam and Dave's uh, When Something Is Wrong With My Baby. So the whole record's been reupholstered, and obviously it's one of the great recordings, period, never yeah. mind R&B recordings of all time. Take care of TCB. That was hers too, right? That That's was hers too. Yeah, yeah. Can you it's, imagine now that hashtag would be everywhere? It was, it was hashtag flawless before <laughs> hashtag flawless. <laughs> Have I said this to you before? The Doors are my least favorite kind of classic rock band. Just don't like them. I mean, maybe it's that I've heard Light My Fire too often. Haven't we all really? I mean, you know, Light My Fire is kind of oral wallpaper at this point. Let's give The Doors a little credit for being dark in a year that was very bright and shiny. Box Tops, The Letter. That's a classic. Yeah. I, uh, Box Tops the Letter, man, what an interesting record. First of all, it's uh, a, an amazing vocal performance by a, wait for it, 16-year-old Alex Chilton. Alex Chilton, with that that gruff voice, uh, he was told in the studio, no, make it gruffer. He does not sound 16 years old. He is singing uh, the letter uh, in uh, a very low register that he basically never sang in again. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. And now, and this is, I think, this is where we come to you and your expertise, where you can answer, how did this song get to number one? I love it, but I just don't understand how the ode to Billy Joe, Bobby Gentry, and the Tallahatchie Bridge, why did he jump unexplained, but how did the song get to number one? Ode to Billy Joe is one of the most left field, interesting, bizarre number one hits in the rock era. Oh, I would good. Argue. I'm glad you said that. It'd be weird if it were. It is so strange. It is. It is such a left field record. It was a huge hit. Not only a number one single, a number one album for Bobby Gentry. By the way, written by her solo. She's from Chickasaw County, Mississippi. Talk about write what you know. She's quite literally writing what she knew. Although. Obviously, she was, you know, spinning a fable about, you know, uh, a man who jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. In interviews, she said that what the song is about is indifference and, and, and sort of storytelling and rumor mongering. The lyric of the song, which is, you know, by far what makes it so interesting, is told around a, a dinner table. I mean, literally, there's lines in the song about, you know, as we passed around the black eyed peas or pass the biscuits, please. Those are lyrics in the song as they're recounting these tales of suicide and, you know, dirty dealings and murder. You know, it, it is it is basically a Southern Gothic kind of murder ballad or suicide ballad. I'm not sure what you call it. The sound of the record, I'm, I'm talking too much about the lyric. The, the sound of the record is wonderfully bizarre and almost psychedelic in a way. It's like psychedelic country pop. Papa said to mama as he passed around the black eyed peas Well Billy Joe never had a lick of sense. Pass the biscuits please There's five more acres in the lower 40 I got to plow Mama said it was a shame about Billy Joe anyhow. Seems like nothing. 
Nothing ever comes to no good up on Choctaw Ridge And now Billy Joe McAllister's jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge There's a popular memory of 1967, right? It's the summer of love, which implies generation gap. It implies, you know, a a druggy kind of youth movement. But honestly, the number one hits of 1967 are more sugary than druggy. They are, you know, uh, taking that summer of love vibe and making it more palatable for the masses, Uh, whether that's, you know, uh, the prefab pop of the monkeys or yeah. the baroque pop of the stones and the beatles that particular year or the adult contemporary pop of the association or you know frank and nancy sinatra it's it's taking the the love vibe in the air and kind of harnessing and channeling it into to something uh, more pure pop It's been said that the music industry is good at taking real cultural movements and making them palatable, you know, music for the masses. I'd say 1967 is a year like that. The hits totally read as of their time, but the number one hits weren't fiery or seriously psychedelic. Many of them are psychedelic light. I say some of the same stuff about Chris Malamphy all the time. He is a writer for Slate. His column is Why Is This Song Number One? And he dissects the top hits of the year. It was 1967, a wonderful year. Thank you, Chris. You got it, Mike. And that, my friends, I, I, I bid you love and good tidings, maybe a debt ceiling deal. Hopefully they're working over the Memorial Day weekend. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara and Joel Patterson serves as the senior producer. I'll talk to you actually on Monday, even though it's Memorial Day, we're putting out a Memorial Day themed show. Bye.